0: Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. One afternoon... While I was here at the church, I was, my day was interrupted by an emergency counseling session, and I call them divine appointments. Now, I don't remember how I felt at the time, um, but many times unexpected interruptions can be frustrating because you, know, you have your schedule what you want to do in the day, and then something comes up and you know you're not going to get everything done. So it can be frustrating. The appointment that day was a young man named Ron. I've told you about Ron. Ron came to me and he said his marriage was falling apart and it was all his fault. And the reason why it was all his fault is because he was addicted to crack cocaine. And so I listened to his story and then we started talking about the the gospel and he listened intently and then he left. And later on that afternoon, I got a call from his wife, and she said that Ron um, went on another binge and was gone, and he went out for about three days. And then he decided he was going to go into rehab, but he came back to the church, came back to my office. And he said, I'm going to go to rehab, but I know it's not going to work. And he said, I know what I need, and it's what we talked about the other day. And so we continued to talk about the gospel, and he left my office that day, changed. And I think I told you recently, I was at Dollywood about six months ago, and Ron came up behind me and grabbed me from behind, and he just looked at me and he said, 18 years I've been clean because of your ministry the gospel the power of the gospel to change lives and you know you think about it i could have missed seeing this life change just by saying you know what too busy today i can't do this appointment could have missed that And Jesus could have been tempted in the same way. Look at at John chapter 4, verses 1 through 9. This is the word of God. Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again into Galilee. And he had to pass. Through Samaria. So he came to the city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, and Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Notice that Jesus has to leave Judea and he has to leave we talked about this last week because of the jealousy of the pharisees they were seeing the people starting to follow after jesus and they were probably intending to arrest him now jesus isn't leaving because of fear he's not worried look at john uh, three thirty five it says the father loves the son and has given all things into his hands He was in control of everything. And he could trust his father who was in control also. Jesus was the one who gave up his life. It wasn't taken from him. He was the one who chose to give up his life. And so this was not his time yet. And so he he leaves Judea. And notice that Jesus doesn't complain to his heavenly father. He doesn't say, why am I leaving here? You know, the ministry's going great. All people, you know, a lot of people are coming and following me. Why am I having to leave now? He doesn't complain to the father. He knows the perfect place to be is right in the middle of God's will. He knew his greatest joy was keeping the appointments that his father had made so he had to pass through samaria he had to meet with a samaritan woman what about you how do you deal with schedule changes in your daily life what happens when things come up unexpectedly do you get upset do you get anxious do you get fearful Or do you realize that ultimately none of this is in your control, but your Heavenly Father is in control? Let me ask you, young people, you're at lunch with your your best friend at school, and your best friend says, you know what? We're going, my family's going to Hawaii, and my parents said that you can go with us. They're going to pay for everything, for the whole summer. You know, and you get Pumped? you're like what and and your friend says you just need to go ask your parents you know and it'll all be settled and so all day long after lunch you're thinking about Hawaii you're thinking about you know surfing you're thinking about snorkeling you're thinking all this you go home you ask your parents and your parents say sorry we already have plans for your summer you know we're gonna go camping in the mountains for four weeks and you're gonna go with your cousin who isn't a believer? so how do you how do you handle that? you get disappointed do you get angry with your parents? you don't talk to them for a while or do you realize that maybe God is setting up a divine appointment what about what about you as adults you know um, you're invited to a wedding it's a family wedding you're thinking, oh this is going to be great I get to sit with all my old friends, some of my family, this will be great. And then when you get to the wedding, you find out you're sitting at a table with all strangers. What do you do? Do you get fearful? Do you get upset? Or do you realize maybe God is making a divine appointment for you? Do You see, when we try to control everything in our lives, thinking that it's going to bring us joy we miss out many times we can miss out on the greatest joy that god has for us look back at the text he left judea and went away again into galilee and he had to pass through samaria in order to get to galilee he had to go through samaria But did he really have to go through Samaria? Because most of the Jews didn't go go through it, but they went around it. They went around it because of their hatred of the Samaritans. Why did they hate the Samaritans? Why did they hate them? Well, in 1998... I was candidating, I candidated here, for position here, and in Greenville, and then in Georgia, in Andersonville, Georgia, and I'll never forget that trip, Denise will never forget it either. I preached at that church, and then that afternoon, we went to a little old lady's house, she was the nicest lady, she made us, I think, fried chicken, of course, you know, fried chicken, David's favorite meal, right? And she got to talking with us and asked us where we're from. And I told her I was from Florida. Denise is from New York. You know, we talked about all that. And then somehow, somehow the Civil War came up. Or, as some call it, the War of Northern Aggression. The the old lady pointed out to a tree in the front yard. It was about this big around, right? It was an old oak tree. And she said, Sherman's army camped under that tree. And I was intrigued. I was like, wow, that is so cool. Um, And then she told us about uh, a prison. It was a Confederate prison in that town, Andersonville. And it held many... Union soldiers that died there. And then she paused, okay? She paused for a second. And then she looked at us and said, and I wish more of those bleep Yankees would have died there. You know, it was like watching uh, American Idol with Steven Tyler, you know, and they blip him all the time. And they cover up his lips so you can't read them. We were in shock. This nice little old lady <laughs> saying, I wish they more of them would have died there. And, and especially since two or three minutes before that, Denise had said she's from New York. Guess what? We figured we weren't called to that church. But you know, it was amazing to see this lady still filled with bitterness after 130 years. But this isn't the only civil war that has caused bitterness and hatred. There was another one in 930 B.C. And that's when Israel split into two nations. Two tribes went to the south, ten went to the north. And then, 200 years later, Israel, that was the northern nation, right? Because of their sin before God, God sent the Assyrians to come in and to take most of the people out of the country. And that's what God did as a way of disciplining the people. And then what the Assyrians did according to their custom is they would take people out and then they would put Gentiles back in. So you have a remnant of Jews there and gentiles put together and that's how you get the Samaritan people. That's how you get them. The Samaritans were hated by the Jews because they were half-breeds. The Jews looked down on the gentiles as dogs and they couldn't imagine. They couldn't imagine a Jew marrying a Gentile. Now this intense prejudice grew even more. In 7 B.C., the Jews customarily left the gates open to the temple at night. And so a group of Samaritans brought in dead people's bones and threw them on the porches of the temple. They desecrated the temple. One writer says this, The Samaritans were thereafter excluded from the temple services, They were cursed in the temple, and their food, and remember this, remember this, their food was considered unclean even as swine's flesh. So everything they ate, they considered unclean. All of this information is to let you know how much hatred there was between the Jews and the Samaritans and the Samaritans and the Jews. Now look back at verse 4. It says... And he had to pass through Samaria. Did he really have to pass through it? No. Because most of the Jews didn't. They would go up. They'd hang a right. They'd cross the Jordan River. They'd go up the east side of the Jordan River. They'd cross back over the Jordan River into Galilee. They'd go around it. But Jesus didn't do that. Jesus didn't do that. Jesus had to go through Samaria because God the Father had chosen people from every tongue, tribe, and nation according to John 3.16. And we didn't talk about that last week. I missed that. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. That doesn't mean that he came to die for every person in the world. It means that he came to save Some from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And we also see that in Revelation chapter 5 where it's fulfilled. It says there are people from every tongue, tribe, and nation in heaven. Who wrote the book of Revelation? Who wrote the book of Revelation? John, right. So we see John 3.16 and we see the fulfillment in his book in Revelation chapter 5. People from every tongue, tribe, and nation worshiping God. And Nicodemus found out in John 3 that it wasn't just Jews that were going to heaven. It was Jews and Gentiles and Samaritans. So God had set up an appointment and Jesus had to fulfill this. He did not come to make salvation possible for the whole world but he came to make it effectual for his elect. Now, where do I get that from? Ephesians 1, 4 says, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. God chose his people before creation, and then he made a covenant. He made a covenant with Christ to come to earth to save us. John six thirty seven says this, All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. Who are the ones who come to Christ? The ones, according to this verse, that the Father gives to Christ. And when did he give them to Christ? Before the foundation of the world. John 6, says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. What these verses are saying is that God chose this woman at the well before the foundation of the earth. He sent Christ to redeem all of his chosen ones, which included this woman. Now think about this. There was no spiritual, no racial, no physical barrier No gender barrier that would keep Christ from meeting with this woman. It was a divine appointment made from eternity past that had to be kept. Now look at verses 6 through 8. And Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. There came a woman of Samaria to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. And remember what I said about the food? Um, The food was considered unclean, even as swine's flesh. And what does Jesus do? Who does he send to get the food? All of his disciples. All of them. You think they all needed to go to get food? No, he sends all 12 into town to get food that Jews would consider all of it unclean. So even with the disciples, he's breaking down barriers. And this was about the sixth hour. Now, Jesus and the disciples had traveled about 25 to 30 miles. So you can understand why he was weary, right? Why, he was probably exhausted. And he's sitting by this well, right? And it's about, according to the Roman time clock, it was around 6 p.m. And that makes sense with the context of the story. He had traveled all day to get there. He was weary. He was sitting by the well, waiting for this woman. He sends all the disciples away so that he can meet with this woman now how would the Jews have treated this woman they would have snubbed her they wouldn't have given her the time of day they wouldn't have talked to her they would have treated her badly why because of their own self-righteousness their own man-made rules that wouldn't allow them to associate with this woman I heard a story, and it was about a a Christian couple who went out to eat dinner. And they treated the waitress rather rudely. And after that, they didn't leave her much of a tip. And then they left with the tip a gospel tract. What do you think happened to that tract? It ended up in file 13, right? In the garbage can. Why? Because the waitress was treated so rudely. You know, Jesus did not do that with this woman. He loved her by his actions. And his loving actions broke through all the barriers so that this woman would listen to what he had to say um a couple years ago we had a discipleship group at sue's wings and things i've told you this before and uh we were meeting there for about six months and then we've got a new waitress who never saw us there and so she was like intrigued and she asked us what are you guys doing it was her first night and we said we're having a bible study and she's like oh okay and then a few minutes later, she comes back and she goes, what are you guys studying? You know, what topic? And we said, uh, creation evolution. We had, a, we had a book on that. And so one of the guys handed the book and says, you can take it home with you and read it. And she said, okay. And then she walked away. And then we, were st- we started talking and saying, wow. We're, you know, we also were looking at a booklet called The Answer, and it's a it was a little gospel book and we were looking through that too so when she came back we gave her that too and she said great she said i just moved here you know and i don't know any anybody and um i don't have a tv so it'd be great to read all this stuff you know why do you think she was open to the gospel because we treated her well we loved her we respected her and that's what jesus was doing with with this woman he was loving her and remember the context of this story we talked about this last week you've got two extremes on the spectrum you know you have nicodemus in chapter three who's this self-righteous pharisee right And then on the other end of the spectrum, you have this immoral woman at the well. Um, Talk about extremes. Listen to what one writer says about this. He says, it's difficult to imagine a greater contrast between two persons than the contrast between the important, sophisticated Nicodemus, the ruler of the Jews, and the simple Samaritan woman. He was a Jew. She was a Samaritan. He was a Pharisee. She belonged to no religious party. He was a politician. She had no status whatever. He was a scholar. She was uneducated. He was highly moral. She was immoral. He had a name. She was nameless. He was a man She was a woman. He came at night to protect his reputation. She, who had no reputation, came in the evening. A great contrast. Yet the point of the story is that both the man and the woman needed the gospel and were welcome to it. If Nicodemus is an example of the truth that no one, can rise so high as to be above salvation, the woman is an example of the truth that none can sink too low. Thus, it is by no means an accident that John places these two wonderful stories together at the beginning of his gospel. And it ends in four 42, chapter 4, 42, with the Samaritan statement that this man really is the savior of the world. What did these two have in common? What did they have in common? They were both spiritually dead. One was, remember, pretty dead, and one was ugly dead. But they were both dead. And they both needed the grace of God to change their hearts. And all of this points to God's grace. The only way that Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman would be saved is by God's grace. And one author says this nothing he could do, nothing he could do would save him. And nothing she did not do would condemn her. Look at verse 9. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Therefore, the Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask me for a drink, since I am a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Let me put this in the context of our culture. Go back to the 1960s. Where in places in our country we had bathrooms for whites and bathrooms for blacks. We had water fountains for whites and for blacks, right? Racism. Now, I want you to picture this well, the Samaritan well, right? And I want you to see a sign over it that says, Samaritans only. Samaritans only. And Jesus is sitting by this well waiting for her to come up. And he asked her for a drink, right? And then he makes a statement, and, and the translation is not real good in the NASB. It says, uh, For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Um, it would probably be better translated, Jews have nothing in common with Samaritans, or share nothing in common so what is that talking about what was jesus doing here now some people say the shocking thing the shocking thing is that he's talking to her and that is because when the disciples show up we'll see next week when they show up they are in shock that he's talking to her right that's one thing but the other thing that's really shocking is what he says to her. Give me a drink. And why she says that we share nothing in common is because he's asking her for a drink from her cup. Can you imagine that? What Jesus was doing there. What he's doing there is he's willing to be despised by the religious crowd in order to display his love for this woman. He didn't care what anybody thought. He was going to break down all the barriers that stood in the way between her and God the Father. And it didn't matter what anybody thought and it didn't matter what his disciples thought. He was going to love this woman no matter what. And I want you to realize that not only did he do that for her, but he did that for you. He was willing to do what it took to break down any of the barriers that separated you from God. And what should our response be to that? What, what should our response be to that kind of love? Well, Jesus wants us to love others in the same way. You know, freely you have received, freely Give, give the gospel to others. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you for this story of Jesus' love For the Samaritan woman, I thank you that no barriers could stop him from loving her. And Father, I thank you that there was no barriers that could stop Christ from loving us, the church. Lord, we just praise you for the gospel. We thank you for your grace. We thank you for your mercy. We thank you for loving us, even though we will never deserve it, not in a million years. We thank you for the forgiveness of sins that you give us when we trust in you. Father, help us to respond with grateful hearts. Help us to respond with thankfulness for what you have done for us. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.